This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm Steve Wills, a professor of history at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, Nebraska. My guest today is Christopher Lupke, Professor of Chinese Cultural Studies and Chair of the East Asian Studies Department at the University of Alberta. Professor Lupke is an expert in modern and contemporary Chinese literature, cinema, and culture, whose publications include New Perspectives on Contemporary Chinese Poetry and the Sinophone Cinema of Ho Shen: Culture, Voice, Style, and Motion. Today we'll be discussing his most recent work, a translation of the seminal 1987 study, A History of Taiwan Literature, by Taiwanese writer and literary critic Ye Shirtao. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Steve, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. As uh, usual with this uh, series, we always like to start by asking our guests to just tell us a little bit about their entry into their specific field. So whatever you can think of that's relevant to this project, we'd love to hear. I'd I'd be happy to. So. I actually went to a small college in the middle of Iowa, so probably not too far from where you're living. And um, uh, I was uh, taking an ordinary set of classes, I guess. And uh, then one day I just kind of decided I wanted to uh, do my junior year uh, study abroad uh, in China or Hong Kong. Turned out at the time, because this was in the 1970s, that it wasn't possible for Americans to study abroad in China. So I chose a Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I spent my junior year there, uh, 1979-1980. Uh, there was no real reason for it. It was just kind of random. I just uh, kind of wanderlust or something. I just wanted to do something different. And so I did that. And uh, at close to the end of that year, though, um, I had learned a lot of Chinese. I'd never studied a word of Chinese before I got there. And I uh, had a strong feeling that I didn't want to give up on this and I didn't want to return home right away. I didn't want to interrupt my studies. And one of my professors uh, suggested that I go to Taiwan, uh, which I did. And so I went to Taiwan. I took time off college and I hung out in Taiwan. I took language courses there. I taught English on the side to make money, had a great time, got pretty fluent in Chinese. Uh, And then um, after quite a while, I returned to the U.S. and finished up my bachelor's degree in philosophy, Western philosophy. But after that, I was really hooked and I decided to continue on with Chinese. And so I ended up getting my master's degree in Chinese literature at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I spent a couple more years in Taiwan, uh, came back to the U.S. and pursued my Ph.D. at Cornell University in Chinese and obtained that. And um, then, you know, eventually found a job uh, teaching Chinese, which I guess is kind of scandalous because um if they're paying me to do this, uh, there must be something wrong. As I, I love to do it, and I would just say that 
uh, lots of ups and downs in the last 35 years, but never once, never one day did I get up in the morning saying, I wish I didn't do this. That's the goal after all. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, um, can you tell us a little bit about how this particular project came across your desk? How did you get involved? So uh, the author, Yesher Tao, is the towering figure in Taiwan, a major public intellectual. And I spent most of the 1980s off and on uh, in Taiwan. So I'd heard of him. I, I knew who he was. Uh, and then in 1987, so this would have been about uh, seven or eight years after I started studying Chinese, this book was published uh, in Chinese. And um, uh, it uh, caused a major sensation in Taiwan. People were paying a lot of attention to it. So I picked up a copy. And eventually when I was doing my PhD, I, I read it. Uh, we'll, I guess we can get into the details uh, uh, in a moment, but for now, I just say that it's it's a great handbook for you know relying on information about the history of uh, uh, Taiwan literature, and so I always had it around. And then uh, quite a while later, in the uh, around maybe 2004, uh, 2005 or so, uh, so this would have been uh, almost 20 years later. Uh, a senior colleague of mine uh, at the University of Colorado, California, Santa Barbara, named um, uh, Du Guoqing, uh, Professor Du, who is Taiwanese, a scholar of Tang poetry mainly, uh, encouraged me to translate it. And uh, so eventually I did. Uh, it's a long, it was a long kind of assorted process because I translated it, it, it sat for a long time, uh, we got some editing from Professor Du and a colleague of his, uh, and then I worked on it some more, and it sat there. But then eventually I got back to it about a year ago, and just, uh, I mean, it was already fully drafted and all, but I just decided to pull out the stops and get it done, and that's when I uh, basically hunkered down and, and, and did it. So we finished it, I think, around uh, January of this year. 2020. Just before starting the podcast, we were talking a little bit about Cambria Press, which uh, is uh, uh, publishing the book. Do you want to just say a little bit about your relationship with them? I'd be happy to. Uh, so uh, Cambria is an, is an independent academic press. Uh, they do a wide range of books. I, I don't even know all of the various things that they do and all the variety of subjects. But the, 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 the director of the press is Tony Tan, uh, herself is a Singaporean Chinese. And um, I got to know her, I think, through meeting her at a book exhibit uh, at the Association for Asian Studies, or it might have been the Modern Language Association. And um, so I was vaguely aware of her and the press, but didn't pay too much attention to it. But she did ask me at one point to peer review a manuscript, uh, a book manuscript, which I did. And I think she felt that I did a, a good job, a thorough job of it, uh, because she said, um, if I ever had a manuscript, a book manuscript that I wanted to publish, please let her know. 
uh, fast forward to uh, maybe 2010 or 11 or maybe 2012. I, I can't recall exactly, but I was finishing up my manuscript on the uh, Taiwanese filmmaker Ho Xiaoxian. And uh, I contacted her and she was very interested in it. And uh, so we signed a contract and I published the book uh, with Cambria. I felt they did a, a fantastic job. So um, Tony and her staff um, have an incredible attention to detail, a very high standard for excellence. And of course, all the books are thoroughly blind peer reviewed as mine were. And uh, so I have, uh, I really enjoyed the process of working with her and the Ed Cambria on that first book. And uh, so it was uh, a no brainer in my opinion to publish this second book with them as well. Yeah. And I'll just put in a plug for the listeners. This is a really nice looking book too. So <laughs> that, that always helps. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I wonder if we could um, now move into uh, talking a little bit more about the, uh, the author himself. So um, if you could tell us a little bit about the background of Yesh or Tao and um, maybe how this particular study fits into his larger body of work. Yes. So, so Yesh or Tao uh, was born in 1925. And he's from southern Taiwan. He was born in the city of Tainan. It's not quite at the southern tip of Taiwan, but it's pretty far down there. Taiwan, Tainan um, was historically the most important city in in Taiwan. Uh, it was a port city, a large city, an old city. And his family uh, are Taiwanese. So it's important to understand exactly what that means from an ethnic point of view. So sometimes several hundred years ago, uh, people, Chinese people from the southern province of Fujian, uh, sometimes called uh, Southern Min, M-I-N, or Minan people, also sometimes called Kholo or Hokhen, which is the Taiwanese pronunciation, uh, for themselves, uh, uh, they began to migrate over to Taiwan. At the time, Taiwan was sparsely populated, but it did have a population of Austronesian Aborigines. But those people have no uh, um, historical relationship to the Han Chinese at all. So the so-called Taiwanese people would be the Han Taiwanese, the Han Chinese people, the Hokkien or Holo people who came over maybe beginning about three to 400 years ago. Um, he came from a upper middle-class family, uh, not uh, extremely wealthy, but not poor. And he did receive a family education in traditional style, which is to say that at home he spoke Taiwanese or Minanhua or Holo, also same word for the language. It is a Chinese language, but it's totally different from modern Mandarin Chinese. It's also totally different from Cantonese or any other regional Chinese language, but it is a Chinese language. And uh, But the education was in classical Chinese, which is very typical of Chinese for the hundreds or maybe thousands of years. So many Chinese 
who come from families of means would have family schools or family education programs and their mainly their sons because it was a patriarchal society would be educated in classical chinese and they could communicate through writing to any other chinese people throughout the country regardless of whether they could speak to them if they didn't know mandarin chinese which was not known by so many people and especially in taiwan where mandarin was not taught uh yeshutao did not know mandarin now uh taiwan was colonized by the japanese from 1895 to 1945 and the japanese did a thorough job of it so they established an education system and the education system was entirely in Japanese. So the public education system, which ultimately Yeshuta went through, uh, in that system, he learned and became fluent in Japanese, which is very common for educated Taiwanese during that era. So as a, a young adult then, uh, he could read, write, and speak Japanese completely and fluently. He could read classical Chinese, which would also be true of Japanese intellectuals in Japan. Uh, and he could speak at home uh, Taiwanese, which he did with his family. Um, this is significant because his early writings, like the writings of anyone of his generation, were in, in Japanese. He was on the younger side. So he was born in 1925. And... Um, the end of the Japanese colonial period was 1945. So he was 20 at the end. So there were certainly writers older than him, maybe born 10 to 20 years older than him, also educated in the Japanese system, who wrote almost everything that they ever wrote in terms of literary works in Japanese. So most of those works have been translated into Chinese. Some of those works have been translated in English. But they're by and large sort of like I would call it like a Japanophonic kind of a thing. So the way the way we call um, you know Anglophonic uh, colonial literature or Francophonic colonial literature, um, this was literature that bespoke the experience of Taiwanese people in Taiwan, but it was written in Japanese. Now after the war, um, the U.S. liberated Taiwan and very quickly just turned it over to the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek was busy in the mainland uh, engaging now in a civil war with the Chinese communists. He didn't end up in Taiwan until 1949. So there was a four-year period in which, uh, during which he had an ally, uh, more than one person, as a garrison commander in Taiwan. And one thing they did was in 1947, they outlawed the use of Japanese um, Ostensibly, this sounds like an anti-colonial, anti-Japanese thing, but it also served the purpose of silencing all Taiwanese intellectuals because it was the language that they knew. Uh, and this was true of Yeshutao as well. And so they had to work very hard, uh, this group of writers, this in, these intellectuals, to learn Mandarin Chinese and to essentially relearn at an adult age how to write in modern vernacular Chinese, or what's called baihua. So it took several years for Yeshertao to do that, but he did eventually accomplish it, but there's a pretty large gap in terms of his literary productivity so that he didn't um, produce a lot until the late 1950s in terms of literature. 
And the other thing is, is most of these intellectuals were also leftists. They, they weren't exactly in line with the Chinese Communist Party in mainland China, but they, they, uh, most of them believed in a kind of a socialist vision for uh, Taiwan going forward. Uh, this was, uh, to say the least, frowned upon by the nationalists uh, and their the, the garrison commander. Uh, there were um, uh, there was a lot of political oppression. Uh, February twenty eighth uh, incident in nineteen forty seven led to uh, the massacre of uh, approximately thirty thousand, maybe more. Uh, Taiwanese intellectuals. There was also a protracted mopping up campaign called the White Terror that uh, this tracking down of intellectuals, this lasted a long time uh, throughout the 1950s, tracking them down, uh, in some cases, summary executions, in other cases, imprisonment. And in fact, Yashir Ta himself was in prison for three years during the 1950s. That is a remarkable life. And uh, we're not even to the point where uh, I, I imagine he's starting to write this book. Was this book largely uh, a product of his writing in the 1980s or? Yes. So, uh, so, so Yashir Tao remained in the South uh, his whole life. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he traveled to Northern Taiwan, but um you know, at that time, there was no high-speed rail system, so it was a, at least an overnighter to go to northern Taiwan and maybe more. Uh, so he's always associated with southern Taiwan. It's not just Taiwanese, but a southern Taiwanese writer. So he began writing again in the 1950s, as I said, and wrote um, literature that was... Uh, 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 typical of the period and typical of the milieu, uh, a lot of uh, uh, literature set in the countryside. Um, he had to be careful, as all writers did at the time, about not being too politically uh, 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 sensitive in terms of the topics that he chose. But everything that he wrote essentially depicted the experience of Taiwanese people in rural or southern Taiwan. Uh, and so this uh, this is basically what happened to him during the 60s. But he was also always interested in kind of being a critic, a literary critic. And I would also uh, uh, say kind of like, I guess I would call him a public intellectual. So he wasn't, he was not an academic. So he wasn't a professor at a university. He didn't have a PhD. He was well-educated, but he, he wasn't uh, wasn't an academic. And so he wasn't that kind of a critic or that kind of a of a, of a writer in terms of scholarship. But what he really liked to do was nurture younger writers, and he did a lot of that during the 60s and 70s. The other thing he did was um, he wanted to describe, he was dedicated to describing the experience of Taiwanese writers. Uh, he wrote an article uh, in the early, mid-1960s on Shangtu Wenxia, which could be translated maybe as nativism. Uh, and... Uh, it got a lot of interest. Uh, and so the writers who were the nativist would be those Taiwanese writers who write mainly about the countryside and write about the experience of Taiwanese people, as opposed to, for example, Chinese writers who are refugees from mainland China. So in 1949, even earlier in some cases, but there was a big wave, 1949, after um, the, uh, the defeat of the nationalists in the Civil War in mainland China, uh, there was a, there's a large uh, 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 refugee population from mainland China that 
came over to Taiwan. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of writers uh, were among those and also of the younger generation, a lot became writers. And uh, they were obviously different. And what their experience was not rural Taiwan. So they didn't write about it. They also, most of them were not speakers of Taiwanese. They spoke their own local language from China and or Mandarin Chinese. So they wrote in vernacular Chinese. And this was a totally different thing from the, the local writers in Taiwan. But it's even more complicated than that because uh, beginning around 1960 or so, some Northern Taiwanese writers, so this would include writers like Chen Yingzhen, uh, Huang Chunming, Wang Zhenhe, um, uh, 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 Yang Qingchu, and, and other writers like this, uh, who were also Taiwanese, excuse me, they began writing of their experiences as well. But um, most of those writers, although they were totally dedicated to the description of Taiwan and the Taiwanese experience, and they also did not see themselves as closely associated with the mainlanders who were refugees from mainland China and from the late 40s, or the sons and daughters of those refugees. Nevertheless, they viewed themselves as writing of an experience that was, um, if I could say so, maybe broader than the Taiwanese experience. And uh, some of them still very much adhere to a notion of Chinese culture. So we have to remember that the notion of Chinese culture and Chinese civilization cannot be fully conflated with the notion of the Chinese nation state or mainland China, because Chinese is a civilization that's gone on for several thousands of years. It's had a huge impact. It's, it's the foundation really uh, to a civilization in Taiwan as well. And uh, these guys uh, see themselves as very connected to that. So these writers, we can call them Xiangtu writers or nativists. And Yashir Tao, and the group of writers whom he nurtured and with whom he uh, was closely associated took a position, a third position, even different from, from them. So obviously they wouldn't be see themselves very associated with the mainlander writers, but they also didn't see them so, so, themselves associated with some of these northern Taiwanese writers, the Shangtu writers, because they were very much dedicated to an identity of Taiwan and Taiwanese culture separate from mainland China. So a term that's often used for them is Bantu. So Bantu Wenxue or Bantu Wenhua, which I've translated as localist. I'm not the only one who uses that term, by the way. So I kind of make a distinction then between the mainlanders, the, the nativist writers or the Xiangtu writers and the localist writers or the Bantu writers. Yashir Tao would see himself as a member of this Bantu group. Now, having said that though, uh, uh, as you can see from the book, uh, Yashu Tao uh, does take pains to uh, provide the reader with a fair and object and reasonably complete view of the history of Taiwan literature. So he um, covers these other writers. He occasionally will offer criticisms of them, but 
he has a broad sensibility, and those writers are included in the works and he in the work and uh, in his book, and he has good things to say uh, about all of them as well, even though his own stance is different. Now, I would say a couple other things about the book. In the, ni- the 1980s was a very powerful period of Taiwanese consciousness. It was the first time in a long, long time when intellectuals and even members of the general public started to think of Taiwan as something in and of itself, that Taiwan is what, not a temporary place and that eventually we will regain the mainland and we'll go back over, we'll run mainland China. That idea was given up on in the 1980s, finally. And uh, gradually, but very certainly, a view that Taiwan is where we live and Taiwan is where we're going to be and where we're going to stay became the dominant view. And when that became the view, uh, consequently, there was a huge amount of consciousness put on the history of Taiwan that heretofore uh, simply just did not exist. And so one aspect of that was addressing this very major period of Japanese colonialization uh, that occurred from uh, 1895 to 1945. So, um, and uh, there was an attempt to go back and really look at that uh, era in detail by many people and in many ways. So historically, in terms of art, as well as in terms of literature. And uh, by doing that, it uh, raised uh, the consciousness among people uh, in terms of uh, the just the status and the amount of material that actually was produced during the Japanese colonial period, first of all. But also, uh, there was a profound undercurrent, and this is where uh, Yeshitao's ideology comes into play, that this long period of colonialization of the Taiwanese people is one of the things that fundamentally changed them and makes them different from mainland Chinese, and that there's no going back on that. So he's definitely part of that group. Uh, who uh, who said that. And then the book reflects that. And then there's this one final aspect of the historical period of the 1980s, which, as I said, um, uh, beginning in 1947, there was often on quite a bit of political oppression in Taiwan. There was tolerance for writers as long as they uh, kept within their own lines. Uh, but there was also persecution of intellectuals who did not. Uh, and we generally refer to this period after the, the massacre as the White Terror period. Uh, it has kind of a vague historical parameter, uh, but it uh, came to a complete end in 1987. So in 1987 was the lifting of martial law, and it was also the death of Chiang Kai-shek's son, uh, Jiang Jingguo, who was the second major ruler in Taiwan in the post-war era, the uh, second president, Jiang, uh, was a complicated figure, but um, he did enforce martial law. And uh, when he died, uh, a Taiwanese person, Li Dengwei, born and raised in Taiwan, native speaker of Taiwanese, a member of the, the Kuomintang or the Nationalist Party, to be sure, but nevertheless a Taiwanese person, became president 
by assumption of power. Uh, so he wasn't elected at first, but uh, a short time thereafter, they had an election uh, and he won that election and he became the first uh, freely elected president of Taiwan, but as a leader of the Nationalist uh, Party. It was an enormous um, watershed moment, 1987, this lifting of martial law, the death of Jiang Jingguo, uh, moving to a Taiwanese uh, political leader, uh, and uh, this uh, sense of the Taiwanese uh, consciousness being really, uh, really strong and pronounced uh, during that period. This book is a product of that period in the 1980s, and he did read, write it. Uh, I, I assume he wrote it over uh, several years because the chapters individually were published over several years in a journal in Kaohsiung, which is the southernmost city in Taiwan, a journal called Literary World or Wenxuejie. And it was after publishing them in that journal and revising them a bit that he published it as a single uh, monograph in 1987, precisely the same year as the lifting of martial law. That gives us a, a, an excellent overview of his uh, his life and the context for this study that you translated. I wonder if, before we start getting into some of the details about the book itself, if you could just describe its overall organization, its structure. Um, you mentioned before that it was not a, a a formal academic scholar, so it doesn't necessarily have the the sort of central thesis that you might look for in an academic monograph. So, if you could just sort of describe how the book is organized in general, that'd be great. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Steve. So, um, although uh, Yeshitao uh, was not a conventional academic, but more of, as I said, what I would call a, a public intellectual in various ways, um, he was extremely well-read. I don't think there was anything that he did not read that was uh, published in Taiwan in the modern era, maybe at all. And so uh, the work is nevertheless uh, quite exhaustive, even though it's not exactly an academic work. It's filled with details. Uh, the book is uh, composed of seven chapters. It, it, is, uh, it is chronological in structure. Each chapter begins, excuse me, with a, with a kind of a, a, a broad outline of a particular sub-period. And then he will often uh, get into particularities and write about uh, specific uh, uh, literary figures uh, and or some of their more important works. Uh, and then also sometimes he'll devote a paragraph or more uh, to an important uh, political or literary event. And then he'll round out the chapter that way. Uh, so there is uh, an attempt to uh, create a historical narrative for the literature, uh, chapter by chapter. So beginning with early literature and then uh, the Japanese period, which he focuses on in chapter two, and then a decade each for the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, it's not a highly theoretical book uh, at all. It's not a book with a strong thesis other than what I've already uh, indicated. 
Um, but it is not not just a narrative. It is a a book. It's almost uh, like a uh, like an encyclopedia or a, or a literary reference book, something like that. Uh, it um, it might not even best be read cover to cover. It it, it is a book that I keep around. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I can't remember everything in the book, even though I translated it. But there's so much detail that when I'm thinking of something, I will go back to the book and and look up that term or that in, that particular writer or that work uh, or something like that and see what uh, Yeshutal uh, said about it. Uh, and so, and so, it's a reference book. It really is. It's something that should be on the shelf, you know, uh, right there, handy at all times. It, it's a it's a great book, uh, I think, particularly for people in Chinese studies who may not be experts on Taiwan, or they may not be experts on literature from Taiwan, or, or they may not be literary studies people. So, for all of these groups, the Chinese is a gigantic field, right? It's a an enormous swath of subject matter. But for people who uh, are in uh, the field generally, uh, but uh, might not be total experts on this particular field, it's a good reference volume uh, to keep around. It would also, I think, be good for people who are interested in literature. And, you know, it'd be good for people, for example, who are interested in post-colonial literature, because Taiwan is a really good example of a place that was colonized and in which uh, there was a colonial literature written in another language, in the colonizer's language, as well as a liberation from that. And so that those things are there. there. And of course, there's just great literature written in Taiwan. And so the book can be a reference uh, for that, uh, uh, for that as, as well. The, uh, I, I think you do see um, a bit of the, um, the proclivity of Yeshur Tao and the fact that chapter two is a uh, hundred uh, is over a hundred pages, and it's the longest chapter, and that's the chapter that that uh, is devoted to the Japanese era when most of the uh, literature was written in Japanese. So he was very dedicated to um, uh, reviving our attention to this uh, this literature. One other aspect of the book was unusual. So Yeshutau, not being a conventional academic, didn't have a huge number of footnotes in the book. So each chapter has maybe, I would say, maybe on average about a dozen brief footnotes. The book was translated into Japanese by two Japanese scholars. Uh, Japanese scholars... uh, have uh, some tendencies not quite like uh, us in uh, in North America. One of those is to supply uh, tons and tons of notes when they do translations, scholarly translations and stuff. So the, the Japanese translation of this book has something like 450 notes in Japanese. Uh, basically, those notes... Uh, uh, in terms of length, are almost equivalent to the length of Yeshutau's original book. And I decided uh, 
way back when to translate those notes as well, uh, which was rough. <laughs> but uh, my Japanese is not very great. I'll just tell you that it's truly not that good. I took three years of Japanese in graduate school, but I was able to get through it. And then I also hired a research assistant who was fluent in Japanese to go over them and correct my mistakes. Um, but I do think that those notes are extremely important to the book because they fill out a lot of details in various ways uh, that uh, Yashutao uh, just basically left unsaid. So altogether, that is the whole book. I did have an introduction. There's an epilogue. Um, the index is important because the book itself does not have Chinese characters in it. So I decided we would create a very lengthy index that uh, had Chinese characters put next to the names and titles of important things, sometimes literary associations or major journals or historical events. And so that's all in the uh, in the index as well. As you just explained, this is really an incredibly multidimensional book when you think about everything that it offers. Um, and uh, as you were just saying, it really does have this sort of encyclopedic depth to it. So um, obviously we won't be able to cover uh, a, a fraction of the, the details to be found in the book. So we'll just recommend it to the reader. Um, and in the interest of time, I think maybe um, I'll just say that uh, the, the first chapter is about the, the, the phrase the transplantation of traditional literature during the Qing period. And there's a, a really interesting um, emphasis on Taiwan status as a frontier on the periphery of the Qing, which I found uh, fascinating. And, uh, and then we also just get, uh, we sort of dip our toes into the, the Japanese colonial period toward the end of that chapter. Um, and maybe, I don't know if you want to say anything about that or if you want to jump right into talking, as you said, the, the uh, by far the longest and maybe the central chapter of chapter two about the colonial period itself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, I would, I would just say about chapter one. So, you know, when I, when I first translated this uh, beginning, you know, 15 years ago, I have to admit I didn't know very much about that, that stuff. So basically what it was was... Um, uh, uh, Taiwan was part of the Qing dynasty empire. And so uh, the Qing court uh, sent over uh, scholar officials uh, uh, to uh, manage Taiwan and to rule Taiwan. And um, some of these people wrote travelogues, which were fairly common in the late Qing. Again, I'm not an expert on the late Qing, so I don't read a lot of these, but it was that kind of a, a thing that they wrote kind of on the frontier. I mean, you do see them. There are some such intellectuals who wrote them of their European travels in the 19th century and also Southeast Asian travels. I don't know very much about them, but they're kind of in that in that vein. And they're very interesting works. Um, uh, Emma Dung 
that's T-E-N-G, who teaches at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, has actually written a book on that subject. It's cited in my bibliography, and if people are interested in that, they could go on to that. Uh, they could they could pursue it by by looking there. And some of some of the um, the travelogues that were written have been translated at least in part into English. But uh, the chapter two is is extremely important, and um, it's um, it's very complex. Uh, because um, uh, Japan itself changed dramatically during the course of the time that they uh, ruled Taiwan and also obviously ruled Korea. So when they first began, uh, you could sort of imagine them as kind of a conventional imperialist power, like uh, the, the British uh Empire, uh, or the, the the Portuguese, or, or the Spanish, or the French, or whatever, uh, they they laid down pretty thorough infrastructure in Taiwan. They did utilize Taiwan to their own benefit, which is the whole point of colonialism, right? By extracting resources from Taiwan, so those would be uh, rice, uh, sugar. Uh, and, and other uh, such staples that were uh, shipped back to uh, Japan uh, to uh, feed their growing population. Uh, and um, there were uprisings. Uh, again, we have to remember that Taiwan's a complicated place because we have these, uh, the, the Holo people. We also have the indigenous Austronesian Aborigine population. We also have Hakka people, which is another Han Chinese ethnic group that uh, had a different immigrant history into Taiwan. And now we had a layer of um, uh, administrative class, you could call it, I guess, including teachers, doctors, bankers, people who ran things who were Japanese who came from Japan. But as the um, the years ground on, the 1920s and 1930s, Japan became more and more of a military state. And again, I'm also not an expert on Japan, but this did change the situation in Taiwan so that Taiwan also became more and more militarized. So there was some time early on when uh, the use of Chinese, for example, was uh, uh, more tolerated than later. Uh, Also, um, gatherings of leftist intellectuals were kind of ignored, more or less. But as uh, Japan moved closer and closer to the military engagement with China and what uh, ultimately became uh, the Pacific War, or uh, the Chinese call it the War of Resistance to the Japanese. Sometimes you'll hear the phrase the Second Sino-Japanese War, because there was a Japan, there was a Sino-Japanese War in 1895, which actually resulted in the ceding of Taiwan from the Qing uh, Dynasty to Taiwan, to 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 uh, to Japan. Uh, or what we in North America or in Europe would call World War II or the Pacific theater, 
World War II. So as they moved toward that, they became more authoritarian, more militarized, more resistant to any foment or dissidents in Taiwan. And things became very, very tight in Taiwan in the late 1930s. Um, and they did do certain things. So, for example, uh, young Taiwanese men were, uh, during the war period, conscripted into the Japanese army and sent uh, overseas. In some cases, they, they fought. Uh, so they fought in, in China. They fought in the Philippines. They fought in Southeast Asia. Uh, some, some of them were uh, medical uh, personnel or other kinds of semi-civilian personnel, but um, thousands, I, I don't even know the number, but vast numbers of, of Taiwanese men during this period were conscripted into the Japanese military effort. Uh, in fact, um, uh, I, I mentioned uh, President Li Denghui, who was the first Taiwanese president of Taiwan beginning in 1987-88. And he, um, his brother uh, was conscripted into the military and died, as many Taiwanese did, in the war, fighting for the Japanese side. And uh, interestingly, his soul, like many of these conscripted Taiwanese, is interred in the Yasukuni Shrine in in Tokyo. That I'm not sure if you know about the Yasukuni Shrine, but it's a it's a point of extreme uh, tension between Japan and China, because the Yasukuni Shrine, which is it's a Shinto state shrine, but in it are interred many, many war dead. That alone is, is okay, except that at some point um, in the post-war period, the Japanese government elected to inter, I think, something like 14 Class A war criminals in there too. Uh, and so it would be a, the equivalent to, you know, interring the the soul of the remains of Hitler or Goebbels or Goering or something like that. And this is especially a sensitive topic for China when a, a Japanese prime minister or other prominent political official goes to the Yasukuni shrine to pay his obeisances. It's considered to be extremely insulting to the Chinese people who look at the war experiences being basically a Holocaust, just as, you know, uh, people look at the the role of Germany in, in Europe. Uh, so in any event, um, uh, those people uh, do exist, these Taiwanese, uh, and uh, they're, they're part of the whole thing. But that all came to an abrupt end in 1945. So that's sort of basically, you know, chapter two. Uh, and uh, with the end of that, you know, there, there's a huge break, obviously. The Japanese were essentially thrown out of Taiwan. They're expatriated. Some of those Japanese were actually born in Taiwan. Uh, 
Uh, and they all went back. They all went back to uh, Japan by order of the nationalist government. After giving us that nice detailed overview of the colonial period, uh, as you mentioned before, chapter two is the longest and most detailed in the in the book. And um, we don't want to uh, lose the listener by getting caught up in all of the rich detail of the chapter. But I wonder if maybe you could try to say a little bit about what the sort of main motivations of the the various writers and poets and critics and public intellectuals he's discussing there were as they were searching for a sort of uh, theory of an authentic Taiwan literature in the context of Japanese colonial rule. I'd be happy to. Uh, so uh, I would say that despite the fact that um, uh, this period of the first half of the 20th century in Taiwan was a period of colonization. It was nevertheless a period of profound intellectual activity in Taiwan. And uh, from the perspective of, uh, of Ye Tao, and in fact, um, most Taiwanese intellectuals, uh, they would view um, this as the foundational period of of Taiwan literature, uh, we the stuff that came before was uh, quite different, and uh, the stuff that came after was complicated by the um, immigration of um, a couple of million people from mainland China. So it was during this period that. A lot of the institutions were established. So this would include uh, literary associations. It was also a period in which there were newspapers established. Uh, so, for example, the Taiwan New People's News, uh, the Rising South News, and so on and so forth. And, and let me just say, Steve, uh, newspapers are important uh, not just uh, for current events, and for political and economic reasons, stuff like that. Uh, newspapers of this era and in Taiwan in general, uh, almost all had a literary supplement to them every single day. So there would be one whole newspaper page, sometimes two, that were devoted to literature. Uh, these uh, tabloids would uh, serialize novels, they would publish poetry, there would be brief essays and so on and so forth. But there were also uh, literary journals established. Uh, some of the major literary figures of the period, uh, just name a, a few. Um, I would say the most important, or let's say the first one would be Laiha, that's L-A-I-H-E, considered the father of Taiwanese literature. Uh, some of the other ones that are also important would be uh, Zhang Wojun and uh, Yang Kui and uh, Li Haro. Uh, there were several. And there were also uh, intellectuals like Lian, uh, Lian Yatang, who wrote poetry, uh, but was also uh, interested in politics. Uh, and during this period, there was a strong motivation to create uh, uh, 
uh, to, to, to infuse Taiwan with democracy. So ultimately this was, uh, this was banned, but there were many efforts to do this. There was an effort to create a, a legislature. Uh, there were, there was talk of having a, a Taiwanese nation and so on and so forth. Um, now, uh, as we as we know, most of this discourse, uh, especially as the years uh, went on under the Japanese rule, was conducted in the Japanese language. So intellectuals could get a good education in Japanese in Taiwan. So the major university, which is now called National Taiwan University, was actually founded by the Japanese as a, a Japanese university, an imperial university. And the um, medium of instruction was Japanese. It wasn't the only one. It was the biggest and the most prestigious. Uh, but intellectuals also traveled to Japan. Uh, now, understanding that I'm not a real expert on modern Japan, so I apologize for that. My impression is that the intellectual milieu in Japan was quite complicated. So many of these Taiwanese intellectuals interacted with Japanese intellectuals. They also interacted with uh, intellectuals, Chinese intellectuals from mainland China who studied in Japan and Korean intellectuals. And places like uh, Tokyo uh, and Kyoto were hotbeds of intellectual exchange. Even though this is uh, right in the heart of the empire, uh, we shouldn't uh, presume uh, that all of these people were in lockstep with the government ideology. So there was uh, a lot of talk, uh, uh, for example, a lot of uh, discussion about socialism, uh, liberation of Taiwan, and so on and so forth. Uh, the intellectuals who did study in Japan were often extremely intelligent, extremely hardworking, and they received top-notch educations. So when they returned to Taiwan, they naturally became intellectual leaders. So even though they went to Japan, uh, most of them did not um, uh, simply parrot uh, the, the, the Japanese um, government uh, ideology when they returned to Taiwan. So that's basically this, this period. I would encourage people who are uh, interested in learning more to, to look at the book. Uh, there are also other books that have come out uh, within the last uh, 15 years or so on this period in English, uh, scholarly uh, treatments of the period, which have um, their own perspective. But that material did not exist in scholarly form for Yeshir Tal back in the 1980s. And I think that that's part of the reason why he saw he, he felt a really important need to flesh this period out in extreme detail. And some of the other chapters, um, maybe he didn't feel uh, they required so much detail because there was already a lot of attention paid to them. 
I do think we need to uh, look at look at them. So uh, chapter three, for example, covers the period from 1945 to 1949. And uh, uh, obviously the most prominent event during this period was the um, February 28th uh, incident uh, or massacre uh, that occurred in 1947. It's associated with the date February 28th, which was simply an incident, but the massacre actually uh, took place um, over about a one or two month period after that. It was very devastating. Uh, Many people uh, were murdered. Uh, A lot of records were lost. Uh, A whole generation of intellectuals were decimated. Uh, Many of the ones who survived uh, fled and lived up into the remote uh, mountain areas in Taiwan where it wasn't easy to uh, get at them. The nationalists did track many of these people down and in many cases summarily executed them. In other cases, hauled them in and imprisoned them. It was a really devastating period. Uh, at the same time, though, it was uh, a period uh, in which um, some intellectuals who came over early, and by early I would mean like 1945 to 1947, um, in other words, before the big wave, the, the big exodus that occurred in 1949, and many of these uh, people were well-educated from mainland China. Uh, they were, the, the civilians among them were not necessarily really hardcore military type people. Some of them were very interested in literature. So they established uh, their own literary uh, organs in Taiwan, and they wanted to work with the local Taiwanese intellectual to get stuff published. Uh, Probably the best known one of those is talked about in the book in detail. It was called Bridge or Chow, which was a literary supplement to one of the major newspapers. And it was in that newspaper that many short stories and many essays on what is the nature of Taiwanese literature, what should Taiwanese literature be, things like this, were, were published. Uh, so that all happened in, the, in this uh, period between 45 and 49. Ultimately, uh, the nationalists did come over en masse in 1949 and set up a a full-fledged government. It took over everything. Uh, It was still the martial law, but it wasn't exactly a military state. Uh, There was a legislature. It was basically a rubber stamp, but uh, it did exist. There was a government structure. There was a judiciary there was a banking system that was set up. So all of these things, education, the hospitals, uh, everything. And during the 1950s, uh, for about a 10-year period, um, most of the literature was written by intellectuals who had been born and raised in mainland China. So remember that Japanese as a language was banned, so people weren't able to publish in Japanese. The Taiwanese intellectuals wrote in Japanese. So until they learned Mandarin and vernacular Chinese well enough, they were essentially silenced. So that whole period of the 50s is 
basically taken up with these writers from mainland China. Two basic characteristics to that writing, both of which Yeshu Tao explains in his book. The one is a kind of a nostalgia for mainland China. So if you read the novels published in Taiwan during the 50s, like The Blue and the Black, Lan Yu Hei is a good example of this. Um, they're set in mainland China. And the experiences are all experiences of mainland Chinese. So they're very foreign to the local population. The other uh, feature of this period is now we're, we were in the Cold War. So uh, very quickly, uh, for global reasons, Japan ceased to be the enemy that it was during the war period. And suddenly it was an ally of the United States and was part of an effort to contain communist China, uh, which uh, during the 50s, it was basically viewed that there was a, a strong alliance between the Soviet Union and, uh, and the People's Republic of China. And of course, there were other countries that ultimately fell in line with this. It's Eastern Europe under Stalin. Uh, later in the 1950s, Cuba, which sent a big shockwave uh, through the United States. And there were two uh, wars during this period, two, two major wars, the Korean War in the early 1950s and the Vietnam War in the 1960s. Of course, even the, the French were also engaged in their own Vietnam War uh, during the 1950s as well. Um, so during this period, Taiwan was a client state of the United States. And the, the Cold War ideology was pervasive. It was, by and large, not contested. And it was just viewed as um, being, um, it was taken for granted that this was the truth. And so a lot of the literature that was written in the 50s and published in Taiwan, it was anti-communist literature. It... Uh, some of it you could say was propagandistic in nature, but it's very politically ideological, very tendentious in nature. Most of it, not all, but this was dominant. Uh, toward the end of the 1950s, even the mainlanders, and by now we're getting into a new generation of, uh, of people in Taiwan whose uh, uh, parents were mainlanders, uh, they'd grown uh, very weary of the Cold War aesthetic, uh, modernism, existentialism, uh, uh, well, a kind of a, a, a lyricism when it came to poetry, a new criticism. Uh, these all flourished in the early 1960s. And the younger generation writers, there were mainlanders. Some of these writers would be Bai Shenyong, Wang Wenxing, uh, Chen Ruoxi. Chen Ruoxi was actually Taiwanese, but she was in this group of modernists. Uh, the poets would be Yu Guangzhong, Zheng uh, Chouyu, uh, Luo Fu, Qi uh, Xian, and others. Uh, and these writers did not want their literature to be overtly or primarily political. They, many of them were still political in certain ways, or let's say politicized or 
uh, governed by political ideology. Um, they wanted uh, literary ideals to be the most important thing. It was also during this period when there were intellectual journals established in Taiwan that imported uh, the writings of Western intellectuals, often translating excerpts and stuff. Uh, most important was probably a journal called Wenxing or Literary Star, which always highlighted uh, Western intellectuals. So there are features on Hemingway and Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Albert Camus, uh, Kafka, uh, women writers like Virginia Woolf, uh, later on Sylvia Plath, uh, and so on and so forth. So these writers had a profound impact on Taiwan in the 1960s and 1970s. At the same time, there was a younger generation of Taiwanese intellectuals uh, who were educated from a young age in Mandarin Chinese. Most of them didn't have the Japanese. So they came of age in the 50s, but they were Taiwanese. And stylistically, uh, most of them were very influenced by new criticism and modernism and existentialism and so on and so forth. But in terms of the content of their work, they were more inclined to write about the Taiwanese experience and, and especially the Taiwanese countryside. Uh, so the mainlander writers, that is to say, those who might have come over to Taiwan at a young age, having been born in, in mainland China, in other words, the second generation who became adults maybe around the year 1960, uh, they didn't have access to that experience, and most of them did not really write about that sort of thing. They might write about um, urban uh, Taiwan or a mixture of Taiwan and mainland China. But these Taiwanese writers who shared with the second generation some significant stylistic affinities, uh, the content of their work was quite different. It was written from a Taiwanese point of view. Uh, it was in the 1970s, especially um, uh, uh, late in the 1970s, that we have uh, the, the beginnings of the big resurgence of Taiwanese uh, consciousness that came to full fruition uh, in the 1980s, and especially with the lifting of martial law, law in 1987. There were some literary debates, some fights about this, uh, but um, uh, that became gradually uh, the most important trend and it's, it's become really dominant over the, the last three decades. Uh, so uh, in the late, late 1970s also, you begin to see historical novels being written. So one of the most important ones, only one of several uh, by a writer named Li Chao, uh, who was a Taiwanese writer, but a Hakka writer, wrote a three-volume trilogy uh, on the history of his own people, the Hakka people. Uh, the name of the book is uh, Wintry Nights, a, uh, a trilogy. The first book uh, in this trilogy 
describes uh, the period um, before the Japanese uh, colonization, so it would be the late 19th century. The second book describes the, the peak of the uh, uh, Jap- Japanese rule in which the main character in that uh, in that volume, volume two, is a political activist uh, involved very much with uh, the development of a strong Taiwanese political party, and he had hoped a legislature, very much like the people that Yeshir Tao describes in chapter two of his book. And then the third volume of that book um, actually features a a Hakka Taiwanese uh, individual who was conscripted into the Japanese military and sent to fight uh, in the Philippines against uh, the uh, Filipino and American, uh, the, the, the war effort against the Allies and, in, and on the side of the Japanese. It's a very fascinating book. That book uh, signifies uh, this huge change uh, intellectually in Taiwan that ushered in the 80s of sort of uh, this renewed focus on the importance of Taiwanese history. So before it, uh, there were lots of short stories, maybe novellas, but very few massive uh, books uh, that are historical of nature. So out of a style, uh, the French term, and I don't speak French, sorry about that, but uh, uh, Roman, Roman a fleuve, and the word fleuve uh, means something like to flow or a river. And in Chinese, the term is da he xiao shuo, which some people have translated big river novel. But in fact, the, this, this subgenre of the novel comes directly from the French term. It was appropriated into uh, the Taiwanese intellectual circles. Uh, there were several of these um, big novels written by a variety of different ones. The one I mentioned is simply probably the most famous one, but not the only one by any means at all. In fact, even uh, Yeshir Tao engaged, engaged in this uh, the style of writing, although he's probably better known for his short stories. Um, and so there's that. Uh, I, I would also, then we have to sort of look at the 80s uh, and look at some of the Taiwanese intellectuals, I mentioned that this, this, this generation of Taiwanese intellectuals who came of age maybe around 1960 or so and did not speak Japanese, uh, but they're still ta- Taiwanese. So even though they interacted with the mainlanders and they were educated along with them, uh, they had their own point of view. And uh, 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 some of them got in trouble uh, politically. The most famous of those is a writer named Chen Yingzhen, uh, who was born in 1937. So he would have been 12 years old when the nationalists uh, began to govern Taiwan. He would have been eight years old when Taiwan was liberated from the Japanese. So as you can see, uh, he he wasn't that heavily influenced by the Japanese era, a little bit, but but. It's not like he was born and raised and grew up in it. And he was educated in the 50s and he went to college in the late 50s. 
but he had a very powerful um, affinity for Taiwanese consciousness. He was a Marxist, a very ardent Marxist, um, uh, very um, devoted to reading Marxist theory. So not just Marx, but he also uh, read, uh, you know, all of the classics, but all the way up until the the Frankfurt School, and he he read uh, Frederick Jameson and some others like that. He wasn't as academic as those. He was an activist. He maybe more like a Marcusa type. He was not an academic, but there was a very strong activist element to this person, Chen Jen. So Chen Jen did um, uh, raise the. He, he incited the wrath of Chiang Kai-shek and the the nationalist government, and um, uh, was uh, imprisoned and actually sentenced to death in the in the late nineteen seventies. Uh, and he was sent off to an island uh, called Green Island. I don't know how green it was, but it was rough. It was sort of like uh, the island. I imagine it sort of like the island that it, that is depicted in that movie Papillon. Uh, <laughs> not not a place where you'd want to send a good friend or spend time yourself. Although now they have tours down there and the prison is open to the public. It's a museum now. Uh, and so he was a political prisoner there for several years. When Chiang Kai-shek himself died in 1975, there was an amnesty uh, put in place by his son. And uh, among others, Chunning Jen's sentence was commuted. And he was suddenly freed. And he suddenly came back to Taipei and picked up right where he left off. <laughs> he's, a, he's a dissident, you know, he's, a, he's here to make trouble, good, good trouble. And he did it. Uh, but he also uh, um, angered a lot of Taiwanese because he was an extremely ardent uh, adherent to global Marxism. So he was vehemently opposed uh, through his entire life to uh, the political independence of Taiwan and the establishment of Taiwan as a separate political state. He felt that ultimately it had to go back to mainland China. It's very unusual position for Taiwanese, but not the only one, but definitely a minority view. And he wrote many amazing stories. Uh, so this, he, he wrote a lot about um, the political suppression that occurred in the 40s and, and in the 1950s. He was one of the first to actually uh, refer in writing and published writing to uh, the February uh, 28th uh, incident from 1947. So, for example, as I said, you know, from 1980 until 1989, off and on, I lived in Taiwan three times, and I spent a significant amount of time in Taiwan during 1980s. I had never heard of the February 28th incident or the subsequent crackdown and the massacre of those people until about 1986. It was unspoken. It was simply, it was so forbidden 
that people probably didn't even think about it. They feared if they even thought about it, that they could be persecuted. As a result, their own children never heard about it, didn't even know it existed. The government was very good at almost squashing uh, the historical consciousness of this uh, this dark period in their in their history. But ultimately, uh, it did come back. And Chen Ning uh, uh, Chen was one of the people who brought it back in his depictions of the disappeared and the profound negative impact that um, the political suppression had on people in Taiwan. He writes this about it in his short stories. A good example is a short story called Mountain Road that is translated into English. You can find it. It's not long, about 30 pages long. But that's not all he wrote about. He also wrote in his um, uh, post-incarceration period uh, about, uh, I guess you could call it like the reification of subjectivity. Uh, he was a true Marxist. He he hated capitalism, and he saw the negative effects of global capitalism on Taiwan. And he wrote about the the commercialization of people's consciousness or the reification of consciousness, almost like from a Lukashian point of view. He wrote about this in uh, uh, several of his stories that were uh, published in the early 1980s. He really lamented that uh, materialist, capitalistic uh, nihilism that was beginning to take over in Taiwan in the 19 uh, in the 1980s. Uh, so that's an interesting um, uh, facet. So all this, you know, brings us up to 1987 uh, when uh, uh, Yeshitao published the book. Uh, and so the book itself has a kind of an abrupt ending there. Obviously, Taiwanese literary history does not end <laughs> in 1987, right? So so it goes on. Uh, in my own book, um, I, if I... If I had, uh, if I only had, but world enough in time, uh, uh, that that epilogue would be much longer. But ultimately, things do have to get out and published, and they have to be on a deadline. I should say this: this book was supported by a a grant uh, by Professor Nikki Lin at uh, National Taiwan Normal University, which he obtained from the government uh, through the Taiwan Literary Museum. Uh, And uh, uh, I had some medical issues when I was just about a year ago, uh, pretty serious, which put the project off by three months. But then ultimately, I had to get it done in order to honor the commitment for that grant. And so I did it. But I didn't want to leave that period silent. And so I devoted, I think, about 15 pages to a kind of a thumbnail sketch of what has happened in Taiwan from 1987 to the present. Lots of stuff has happened. Lots of amazing writers. Uh, lots of women writers. So some of the important women writers I could mention, I think it's important to do that. I would say... Zhu uh, Tianwen and Zhu Tianxin, uh, both uh, briefly mentioned in by Yeshitao, but 
then taken up in a little bit more detail by me. These two women writers who they were born in the late 1950s, they're about my age. And so they would have gone to college in the late 1970s, early 80s. So they would have come of age as adults uh, around the lifting of martial law. And so they're prominent writers even today. Uh, amazing writers. Their own ethnicity is interesting because their father is a mainlander. He was in the military. He was a refugee from mainland China. He married a Taiwanese woman, Hakka ethnicity. And so their father is a mainland Chinese individual. Their mother is a Taiwanese uh, individual. But uh, patriarchal attitudes being what they are, they're generally looked upon by Taiwanese intellectuals as being of the second generation or the third generation of mainlanders, not of Taiwanese. Uh, but be that as it may, they are great writers. Uh, a, a, a good example of a Taiwanese writer would be the writer Li Ang. And uh, that's L-I is her surname and A-N-G would be the given name. This is actually it's a pen name, but her name is Li Ang. So Li Ang is 100% uh, Taiwanese, comes from a Taiwanese family of many generations, native speaker of Taiwanese or Holo. Uh, about the same age as the Jew sisters whom I mentioned, uh, educated about the same time they were. Um, early, her early writing was very influenced by modernist principles. Ultimately, she began exploring issues of sexuality, uh, very much a feminist in her writing, uh, explored uh, the exploitation of women uh, spousal abuse uh, is a big topic in some of her writing. Um, but she did write a novel in the 1990s uh, that explored the history and the, po the political history and the repression of um, Taiwanese intellectuals, part of it in the Japanese period and part of it uh, in the nationalist period that followed. And so in that sense, she is more of a, uh, of a, a Shantou uh, writer. Uh, she is a very ardent uh, uh, supporter of Taiwan's political independence. So that's a very interesting thing. You anticipated pretty much every question I might have asked along the way. And um, so <laughs> I'll just uh, try to wrap this up if I could by uh, saying for the reader's sake that um, uh, Chris's uh, epilogue there really does a nice job of, uh, as much as possible within the space allotted, bringing us to pretty much up to the present and bringing in, bring uh, uh, the reader a sense of the diversity and great sophistication, the, the stylistic experimentation that you can enjoy in the literature of Taiwan. And um, I think it's obvious just from listening to your sort of um, your own encyclopedic knowledge and your ability to discuss the uh, history of uh, the literature of Taiwan in, in such detail that um, he definitely found the right translator. Oh, thank you. And I wonder if we could just, uh, before we let you go, if you want to just tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. I'd be happy to. So I have been working on, right after this project, another project that um, uh, 
we were working under the pressure of a deadline. So we've recently finished it. It would be published soon. Um, a colleague of mine uh, named uh, Dr. Thomas Moran teaches at Middlebury College. And he has previously uh, edited and overseen two major reference works in a series called the Dictionary of Literary Biography by uh, uh, Brooke Coley, uh, Clark, and Lehman. So this uh, book publisher, and these books are now distributed by Scent Cage, which is a major publisher, but the work is all done by this Brooke Coley, uh, Clark, and Lehman. Uh, they have about 450 volumes in the series now. This Dictionary of Literary Biography, they focus on uh, one topic or sometimes one individual. Uh, so uh, Dr. Moran did two volumes on Chinese fiction, uh, one from 1900 to 1949, and then one from 1949 to 2000. Uh, and I, uh, I did... Uh, uh, some of the entries in those volumes, uh, but there were his projects. And he's, he got to know this particular genre very well. The literary biographies are roughly around five or 6,000 words. There's narrative, but they all also have um, substantial bibliographic information. In other words, they have like, primary materials and also references to secondary scholarship. So a few years ago, uh, Professor Moran, we're old friends, we went to graduate school together, um, said uh, we should do one together on contemporary Chinese poetry. So uh, I I don't think I mentioned it, but uh, one of my strong um, scholarly interests is, is contemporary Chinese poetry. And I thought that was a good idea because he knew how to do these books. and and I know the poetry. So we set out to do it. Um, the book is now completed. There are, I think, about 45 essays in it, uh, one essay per poet. So that would be 45 poets. Uh, the book is a, it's a, a big format book, uh, altogether about 450 pages, it's pretty big. And it uh, consists of mainland Chinese poets, uh, poets from Taiwan, and there are a few Hong Kong poets, not as many as I, as we had wished, but they are in there. And uh, that uh, whole reference volume will be coming out sometime around the end of this cal calendar year. So that was my most recent uh, uh, so-called future project. Uh, and I and and the next project that I will do is co-editing with another colleague, um, Alexa Jobin, uh, a uh, an MLA volume, Modern Language Association, uh, approaches uh, to the writings of Lu Xun. So Lu Xun is considered to be the doyen of modern Chinese literature in mainland China, a very important person. This series, again, this is several hundred books in this series, usually short essays that are designed to help people with the teaching of the subject matter. Some of the volumes focus on one major individual writer. Some focus on all of the writings of a given writer, some on one work. 
So we're going to uh, cover as many of the most important writings of Lucian as possible. It will be the, I think, the second or maybe the third volume on Chinese literature in this series. The, the series is called Approaches to Teaching World Literature. And so the MLA has finally got around to the idea that world literature isn't just Europe and North America, or even worse, is Europe and the United States, uh, that there are other places too. And so they're trying to get this done. So that's the project that I'm working on right now, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, it sounds like it's been a really busy and productive couple of years for you. And um, I just want to thank you for taking the time to discuss this current, most recent publication, The History of Taiwan Literature by Yesher Tao, and uh, encourage all of our listeners to go out and pick up a copy. I, I really appreciate your, your doing this, Steve, and, and thanks for being such an attentive listener. And thanks for um, uh, reading the book so carefully. I was very impressed with your notes. Well, it was my pleasure. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning into this episode of the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. And keep an eye out for new interviews coming soon to all fine purveyors of podcasts. Thank you.